um, when the idea of authority comes up for you, do you have positive feelings about it or do you have negative feelings about it? Is there a sense that you think of authority and think of power for justice to be done or do you see it as the abuse of that power? Um, do you see justice or do you see authority as the ones who make the wrongs right in society or the ones who are really negligent and indifference towards evil that's there? You know, all of us have experiences of an authority figure and it really shapes us of who we are. But here's why this matters. We take whatever view of authority that we have and we bring it to authority figures in our lives. And if Jesus is our king, he's our authority, how we think through that comes into how we listen to what he says. So this morning, I want us to take a look in Matthew's gospel. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, so feel free to flip there for me. And I want to give you a little bit of background into the book of Matthew. Um, Matthew is a gospel, so it's a good story about the work of Jesus Christ. And that whole story has a theme. And really the best theme that scholars and other commentators have said for the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the coming king that Israel never expected. That Jesus is the coming king that Israel never expected. He came to establish a new rule and reign and set up his kingdom here on earth. If you guys were with us in the summer, we went through the follower series where we looked at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and really saw Jesus' kingdom ethic a kingdom lifestyle for his people to live under. Whether it was turning the other cheek, not seeking retaliation, forgiving uh, when you didn't, you know, when you think you shouldn't forgive first. That idea. He explained at the end of that passage, Matthew writes this very telling word of who Jesus was. At the end of all of that teaching, it says at the end of Matthew 7 that Jesus taught with authority. He taught with authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. And so what follows in in Matthew 8 and 9 are a lot of demonstrations of his authority. So here's a quick run-through of what Jesus has done two chapters before where we are today. So in Matthew 8, he starts by cleansing a leper. He heals a centurion's servant from afar. Wasn't even in the location, said the word, the centurion's servant was healed. He went to Peter's mother's, mother-in-law's house and healed her of a fever. And there were many that were demon-possessed around that area, came to him and were healed that night. Uh, he taught about, in, a, in an authoritative way about how ministry has a cost. It has a cost for those who come and follow Jesus. He shows his authority over the forces of nature, right? He is on the Sea of Galilee going across to the other side. And the disciples respond with great awe. It says, who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? When they finish crossing over to the other side, the demons actually beg Jesus not to cast them anywhere else except into some pigs so that they can go off and not be tormented by Jesus. Demons actually begged Jesus because demons knew the authority of Jesus. So Jesus then pronounces forgiveness of sins over a paralytic man, then proves his authority for such a pronouncement by healing him on the spot. Jesus shows his authority when he calls Matthew to himself, the autobiography that Matthew is writing. Matthew should not have been one who should have been called. Matthew was the tax collector of the day, the one who extorted Jews and gave the money off to Rome. And yet Jesus, an authoritative king, called him to follow him. Jesus resurrects a little girl uh, and brings a woman who had uncleanliness for 12 years back into the community of faith. He had the power to heal her of that. Jesus then heals two men 
whom both men were blind, but yet knew that Jesus was the son of David. So they called out, son of David, son of David, please heal me. They recognized his authority, and the response was, it says, never was anything like this seen in Israel. So after all of these demonstrations of authority over nature, demons, Pharisees, etc., Matthew spends this first paragraph that we're going to spend today in talking about the kingdom of God, summing up, essentially. Who's the ruler of the kingdom? Who, uh, what's really, what's his attitude of the rule? And then how his people operate under his rule. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So this is what Matthew 8 and 9 essentially is a summary of, right? All of these healings, casting out demons, etc., etc. This is Jesus proving that he is the kingdom. Yet there's something specific that Jesus, and specifically Matthew, is trying to communicate to his audience. He says that Jesus is teaching about, proclaiming, and demonstrating something specific, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So what's Matthew trying to communicate when he says the gospel of the kingdom? Why did, why did he use that phrase, that terminology? Uh, he's communicating that Jesus Christ is the king, the ruler of his own kingdom, the one who has authority to heal and speak life into who people are. And that's the good news. This is what Jesus went out and taught in the synagogues. This is what Jesus proclaimed, the message of the good news of the kingdom of God coming. And then this is what Jesus demonstrated, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, for us in 21st century America, we don't operate under the rule of a king. We don't have kingdoms. So the reality of living in a kingdom and a new king coming in to take over is something that's foreign to us. And yet, for this audience, it would have been something very familiar. So when you hear about the gospel of the kingdom, oh, there's this new ruler. Oh, there's this new power who's coming in. And here's what you need for a kingdom. You need a ruler, you need a location, and you need a people. There's got to be somebody who's in charge and says, hey, I'm leading this thing. There's got to be a location, a territory, some geography upon which people live in underneath that guy's rule. And there's those people a group who live in subjection to the king. So here's what's interesting. Here's what takes place in the new kingdom of God. We have a good king. Jesus is our good king. His character is unquestionable, scripture says. He's perfect. His wisdom, unsearchable. Think about how many times in the scriptures the Pharisees are trying to stump Jesus and then he comes back with another question against them. His wisdom, you can't, Uh, fathom in all arenas. His character is unchanging. And there's no other leader like this, unlike the world in which we currently live, right? Where leaders can be evil, leaders can manipulate, leaders can do things for their own sordid gain, right? But not Jesus. You see, we have a good king, and yet the location of his kingdom, inside his kingdom, evil is evicted. Evil runs and flees, right? He's currently still seated on the throne of God right next to the Father, and he is now ruling and reigning and purposely working to evict evil out of this world. Just like we see in chapters 8 and 9, he is pursuing the demon-possessed and healing them. He is pursuing those who are sick with diseases and healing them. He is pronouncing that the greatest miracle of all, that people's sins can be forgiven. That's what he's doing. And in his kingdom, he is getting rid of that evil that's there. 
So we have a good king where in his kingdom evil is evicted and where his people share in his rule. The good news of this kingdom is that his people are those who not only love him but serve alongside him. This is exactly what we talked about last week, that we join Jesus in his work of reconciling this broken world full of enemies of God back to friendship with him. This is what he came to do. He came to establish the kingdom of God. So in this kingdom, there is no other better ruler than Jesus Christ. He is our king. He is our ruler. And because he brought the gospel of the kingdom, he is the perfect ruler of that kingdom. He's demonstrated it. He's shown it. This is exactly what he's done all throughout these couple of chapters. And yet, with Jesus as that king, we also need to know the authority that he possesses and the attitude by which he uses that authority. So we're going to pick it up in verse 36, and we're going to talk now about the compassion of the king. The compassion of the king. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep Without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Matthew right away gets right to the heart of who Jesus is as the ruler. He's a ruler who rules with compassion towards those who are outside of his kingdom. Now, that word compassion, we can see compassion and kind of read maybe some sympathy into it, maybe some empathy into it. But when Matthew wrote this, he used the word that literally says that your bowels yearn. Like deep in your guts, you feel this emotion towards people. Jesus could not have felt more deeply in that moment for the vast sea of needs that he saw amongst these people. But you see, Jesus doesn't just have irrational feelings, right? Jesus doesn't have illogical moments. So there's a reason why Jesus feels this amount of compassion for these people. He says this is the reason. They're harassed. They're helpless. He likened them to sheep without a shepherd. So again, for them, an agricultural society, right? Where flocks of sheep would naturally be walking along the roads and in the hills. So this is a beautiful image and a beautiful analogy for those people to understand. Sheeps, according to Wikipedia, are flock animals, okay? They are flock animals, and when one leaves the flock, it literally said in Wikipedia, I can't make this up, he gets entirely stressed out. So it's like, imagine this, this sheep who just is freaking out, can't find the flock, can't find where he's going. Jesus is relating those people that he sees to that sheep. I think for us, as I was thinking about an image that maybe could make sense for us, um, I think maybe it would be likening the crowds to a child who gets lost in a crowded store or a mall, right? As a dad, Holy cow, that's like my worst fear, to turn around and not see Paisley and not see Everett and see a sea of people and go, ah, I don't know where my kids are, right? But think about it from the child's perspective. Dad's gone, mom's gone, complete fear, mental frantic, sobbing uncontrollably, uh, screaming at the top of the lungs, where's mom, where's dad, and they can't do anything. That's the picture that Jesus gives of these people that they're helpless, and that they're harassed. You see, theirs was a spiritual reality and not just a physical one. Jesus knew that Satan and demons tormented people. Jesus looked at them and didn't just see the physical reality in which they operated. He saw into the spiritual reality and saw 
the work of Satan and demons tempting, tormenting, and harassing people. So in addition to that, Jesus uses another agricultural analogy, right? He talks about the harvest to represent the crowds in which he's speaking. So he uses the first analogy, they're sheep without a shepherd, they're helpless. But then he shifts gears and then he says, but the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So all these people who are lost and in need of King Jesus is literally like a harvest ready to be picked. We went to Oregon Heritage Farms yesterday and doing that tractor ride, just seeing all of these apples, it's like an endless sea of apples. There are so many apples that are there. In fact, apples fall off the tree, they fall to the ground, and they become then compost for more apples to grow. Like there's literally so much apples that they just keep falling off the trees. Jesus is looking at the crowds and saying, it's like that, guys. There's so much work to be done. There's so much of this harvest that has to be picked. But then he shares the reality, right? But the laborers are few. There aren't many who see what Jesus sees. There's not. If there were, there would be more workers in the field. So in response to all of this, Jesus commands his disciples to pray. He says, pray that the Lord would send many laborers into the harvest field. There's a never-ending supply of broken people with massive amounts of needs that Jesus is relating to this harvest. They just need to get picked. And throughout this entire passage, this is the one command that Jesus gives his people. He says, you must pray. But the, the term for pray is not just like a wing in a prayer type of prayer. Hey, Hail Mary, you know, throw that touchdown. Jesus, make it happen for the ducks, you know? Like, it's not one of those prayers. It's, it's this begging. It's this absolute begging for Jesus to do something. Luke uses this term when he talks about a man who approaches Jesus with leprosy and begs Jesus to work in his life. Luke uses the same uh, word in, this, in his gospel to describe a demon uh, inside of a man coming and asking, begging Jesus to not cast him out. It's that urgent plea. As a result, those people are under the wrong king. They're under the wrong ruler. And he tells his people to pray. So as the ruler of the kingdom, Jesus knows that the crowds are under the reign of Satan and demons. He knows it. He sees that spiritual reality. And see, that's what makes Jesus compassionate. Jesus is compassionate as a king because he allows others to see that same compassion. He wants others to share in that compassion. Think of the person when you come out of the supermarket who's holding the sign who wants to talk to you about something clipboard, hey, can I talk to you about this, about this, about this? They have a passion for a cause. And compassion is with passion. They want you to share in that passion. Jesus wants his people to share in that passion to see others come to know him. But see, what's intriguing to me as I read this is that Jesus isn't just telling them to go off and find laborers. They could have perfectly done that. Most of them come from an agricultural or a trade-type society where if they need to find some people to get some work done, I'm sure they can just go out and find some people and start picking some fruit. If that's what needs to happen, I'm sure these disciples can get it done. But Jesus doesn't tell them to do that. Jesus says, pray, because God is the one who's going to send them. God is the one. So why? And I was reading this last night, and it all just dawned on me as I'm reading the Word of God. You know what's cool when you read the Word of God? 
for you and for me is that the Spirit moves. The Spirit works. The Spirit is able to, you can keep the amens coming. We don't have to be so quiet in here, okay? This is, this is totally fine. Um, I don't get thrown off, so no sweat at all. The reality is, when we read the Word of God, the Spirit speaks. So last night as I'm reading and preparing and thinking for today, it's like, it's like right there in the text, and I should have seen it the whole time, but I didn't really see it till last night. So when he says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. The reason why Jesus tells his disciples to pray is because it's not their harvest to reap. It's God's. It's his harvest. It's his plan. It's his work that they are joining into. And the beauty of this is that Jesus says, pray because there is a role that I want you to have. The Lord of the harvest has to be the one to send those into this work. You know why? Because this work is exhausting. Ministry work is exhausting. It will drain you to the core of who you are as you labor to talk about you know, who Jesus is in the lives of people. As you pray, as you serve, as you demonstrate the good news of this king, it is exhausting. So Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, has to be the one to send you into this because he's the one who's responsible ultimately. So as the compassionate king, Jesus shows the disciples this need. There's a harvest of helpless and harassed people who need to be underneath his rule. But how is that going to be accomplished? How are these people going to move from being a part of Satan's kingdom into Jesus' kingdom? Believe it or not, though it isn't the disciples' harvest, there's a role for them to play. And I want to take a look at that now. Because this is the final aspect of what a kingdom is, right? The people whom Jesus rules over. Here's who they need to be. So go to chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In seminary, I took a uh, class on preaching. And uh, I loved this professor. He was such a good preacher. And the reason why my heart was drawn to him is that he talked about the Bible as a story. He talked about it as there's a plot, there's characters, It's like any other form of literature. The way in which God chose to reveal his truth, at least for Matthew, was in a story form. And you see, as we read this, if if this were a screenplay, if we were literally turned around watching a flick right now, and if we were seeing this on this big screen, and this verse comes up and you see it enacted, this is the part where we would gasp. This is the part that we would go, wait, what do you mean? Hold on a second. I'm not understanding. This is the twist in the story. This is the twist of what's going on. You see, you and I love stories, right? We pay lots of money to come and sit in these comfortable seats to watch a story happen. We're we're encapsulated with stories in this culture. But yet every good story has tension, right? There's conflict that occurs, unexpected events that build on top of each other. Everything seems to be all right, and then things shift. This is why shows like 24 existed, people, okay? Whether you're watching Designated Survivor now or 24 then, if you are just a Kiefer Sutherland fan, there's a reason why you keep watching him. There's a reason, because there's a twist, and it keeps you sucked in. But oftentimes, because we can see the Bible as a bunch of facts, we don't get sucked into the story. We don't get sucked into what's actually happening. 
So think of the overarching theme of Matthew's gospel, right? Jesus is the good king whom Israel wasn't expecting. They weren't looking for him, but he showed up. So what's his overarching quality? His authority. His authority is being shown in the teaching of Matthew 5 through 7, demonstrated in the Acts of 8 and 9. And here comes the twist. Jesus, the good king, gives his disciples that same authority that he has. He tells them to do what he did, cast out demons, heal the sick, proclaim the good news of the kingdom. But think about this. Why is this a twist? What king shares his authority? Can you think of one king ever that says, I'm going to work hard whether I'm born into this family or I defeat a lot of people on a battlefield. I now have this authority. The first thing on my decree is to share it? That doesn't happen in other kingdoms. But it happens in the kingdom of God. It happens in the kingdom of God. As people of the king, they were given that authority. Put yourself in the shoes of Matthew, right? Just literally, like half of a chapter before, he's writing his own autobiographical account of how Jesus called him to himself in authority. And he responded by saying, yes, I'll follow you. And then the extortionist, the tax collector, the the least choice, you're not picking him number one off the wall for the basketball team, guys. You're not. You're not picking Matthew. And Jesus then gives Matthew that authority. He gives Matthew and the rest of his disciples that authority. Now, here's another big twist in the storyline. So what did Jesus tell his disciples to do in the last verse, right? He said what? Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. See, when we read the Bible, we read it with chapters and verses. So sometimes in our morning devotions, we could read Matthew 9, 35 through 38 and stop, not realizing that 10, 1 is the answer to the prayer of 9, 38. That when Jesus says, hey, pray that the Lord would send people into the harvest, and the next verse says that. And he called his 12 disciples to himself, and he gave them authority, and he sent them out. You see, they were the answer to their own begging. They, for their own prayer, they were the ones that answered the call of Jesus. Chapter 10 continues where it just goes on and on about Jesus telling them, guys, the worst is to come. We're being sent out. You're going to be sheep a month wolves. You're going to get persecuted. But yet, at the, in the, at the end of it, he talks about the reward that's there. That despite all the hardship, all the trials that's coming your way because I'm sending you out, there is a great reward and it's me. And you get to join me in Jesus' work. So from this text, we see that Jesus establishes the kingdom. He has this amazing heart of compassion towards people. And he then shares that authority in the greatest twist in Matthew's gospel. So what does that mean for us though? What does that mean for you and me as disciples of Jesus here and now? I think the first question we have to ask comes back to the section of the ruler of the kingdom, the very first thing we talked about. Are we living in the gospel of the kingdom or are we living in the modern day gospel? Here's what I mean. The gospel of the kingdom, what we see out, laid out in Matthew's gospel as well as Luke's, Mark's, and John's is that you are invited to join Jesus in his life and his kingdom work. At the heart of this gospel message for at least those who adhere to it, is one of submission. That we come and we submit to the will of God, and as we are invited into his life, we follow him to what is actually life, following him in his life. 
His agenda is number one on the to-do list. We live for him and he, we do what he tells us to do. And yet the modern day gospel, what we see often laid out in our understanding of the gospel today is that you invite Jesus into your life. You invite him into your work. So at the heart of this, if we're honest, is a heart of defiance. It's a heart of saying, King Jesus, I'm going to invite you into my life because when I need you, I'll call on you. But until that time, don't take the wheel. Be on the passenger seat. We invite him into our life and tell him to join us in our kingdom work. We're still about our own agenda because it's preached that we invite Jesus into our lives. And yet, where would you land as I ask you that question? Are you living in submission to the gospel story of the kingdom of God where he is king and you are not and it's so much better that way? Or are you living in defiance by believing the modern day gospel that you invite Jesus into your reality and yet you still sit on the throne somehow? What Matthew makes clear is that Jesus is king. There's no one else. We can't have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other. It has to be one or the other. Following Jesus wholeheartedly or not. I think the second question we have to ask today is response to the compassion of the king. Do we have a heart of compassion or do we have a heart of indifference? You see, when Jesus saw the crowds, Matthew was clear. He had compassion on those he called to follow him. So how many of you have taken like a spiritual gift assessment or test or something like that? It could have been great. It could have been bad. How many of you have done that? If you don't know what that is, it's just you, you look at some specific passages in Scripture and they kind of tell you where you're ministerially gifted. Okay, when I take these tests, um, the last on my list is always mercy and compassion. Always. So when I read a text like this, here's what this means. There's a lot of growth that has to happen in my life. There's a lot of growth that's got to work in me. Because I've got to take my eyes off of myself. You, you see, I think those who are really, truly full of compassion are able to take their eyes off of themselves and put them on others and, in fact, put themselves in their shoes who can understand and empathize and see. This is what makes Jesus such a good king. He's that selfless, selfless king. You know, I, I, I think of it, this way. The main way in my life that I need to change is I need to die to my own agenda. You know, maybe in the business world you took the Myers-Briggs analysis or like the DISC test or whatever. Myers-Briggs, I am ENFP. That just means I'm entirely extroverted. I'll talk your ear off forever. I'm intuitive. I think through things. I don't have logic. I feel a lot, which is great. For some of you, you think that's horrible. That's fine. And then there's, there's a perceiver in me. That's how I, how I react to situations in this world. In the DISC test, I'm, I'm an ID. I'm a quote-unquote inspirational doer. We'll see if that's actually true, okay? Um, but in the midst of it, it's, it's, I'm a guy who pushes. I'm a guy who pushes hard. Like, I'm a doer. I want to get things done. There is stuff to do. There are people who need to meet Jesus. There's a church to be planted. There's a city that needs to be changed. That's my thought process. That's how I exist. So, perfect example. If there are people talking for 10 minutes about the pros and cons of what restaurant to go to for lunch, I'm pulling my hair out. Just make a decision. In fact, if you won't, I will, and I'll get everybody else to go with us, okay? That's how my personality 
reacts. So I have agendas. And in this world, maybe people can look at that and see it as a valuable thing. Hey, Steve can get some things done. Maybe he's a doer, okay? He's accomplishing a lot of things. He's putting his nose down in the grindstone and he's pushing, right? But I have a feeling that in the kingdom of God, that's not the type of leader that's good for the kingdom. Here's what our agendas as believers need to be like. Listening to God throughout the day and doing what he wants. That's the agenda for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Sunday. That's the, that's the agenda. Doing whatever God tells us to do. And yet, in our agenda-driven world, that doesn't happen much, right? Can you relate? How often, on your, how often do you arrange your day, let alone your life, around listening to God and doing what he does? But for the disciple, God's agenda is what flies, not mine. It's not about my agenda. So when we see the crowds in our lives... Do we see them as obstacles to our agenda or do we see them as opportunities in God's agenda? Do we see them, uh, like do we, like we don't go to a shopping mall, see that happen with a little girl or boy, get freaked out and just do this, figure it out. But how often do you and I do that to our neighbors? How often do you and I just ignore the helpless state that people are in? We overhear yelling in the house next door, and in our heads we're like, they're at it again. Gosh, won't they stop? It becomes an annoyance for us rather than an opportunity for us to feel their brokenness from across the yard and pray for them and maybe engage them the next day and talk with them. See, when we see the world in this way, when people are helpless and harassed and they need a shepherd, we can't help but pray. We can't help but beg God to send us into the work. Paul said it in Romans 9, 1 and 2 this way, that he had unceasing anguish for those who don't love Christ. In fact, he would give up his own salvation if it meant that his fellow Jews would come to know Jesus. So here's the third question we have to ask. Do we live in authority? that Jesus shares with us, or do we live in the helplessness that we too often believe? You see, compassion for those far from God lead to prayer, but then prayer leads to correct action. Not Steve's agenda, he's got to get stuff done, but God's agenda in me and in you in this community. That's what God is after. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every day and think, wow, like I look at my hands like Spider-Man style and go, oh, I share the same authority like Jesus. I don't, I don't, think like that. But yet that doesn't make it not true. Many of us don't realize that when we pray for people to meet Jesus and become Christians, that we are actually the answer to our own prayer. I think of it this way. How many of you guys have ever like lost your keys? Like you're the reason why the tile app exists. You know what I'm talking about? The one that sticks on your keys and tells you where your stuff is? Okay. So when, when you're stuck, you're, you're late for work, you're trying to pick up the kids from school, what do you do? You blame the first person around you. You go, okay, you moved my keys, or kids, did you touch my keys? Or doggy, did you eat my keys? Like, what happened? Like, are you, where's my keys? And then have you ever had that moment where you're feeling stuck and you don't know what to do and you reach in your pocket and they've been there the whole time? Okay, you're better than me then. When that happens, I, I, it's like we realize that we're not stuck at all. Like we could have been off doing what we need to do that whole time. 
I think when it comes to this authority idea, as God shares his authority with his people, it's like that analogy. Where all of us have been given the Holy Spirit of God to live inside of us, to walk in authority in an evil world, to demonstrate the goodness of the kingdom of God. So that when we pray, demons could be cast out. That when we pray, people could get healed. And just because we don't see it in a nice, simple, quaint, rich community like Sherwood doesn't mean it's not there. Doesn't mean that it's not there. And yet knowing that we share in Jesus' authority should give us confidence, guys. That when we pray, that God will actually listen to our prayers. That God would work on our behalf to show that the kingdom of God is here and now through us. So here's my hope for us in light of this text, that we would join Jesus in his kingdom work and not invite him into ours. That our hearts would be bursting with compassion, bursting for those who are far from God and not indifferent because we are self-focused. And that we would live in that authority that Jesus gives us, that we would pray and God would move, that we would talk about the goodness of Jesus and we'd see people come to faith in Christ Because the power of the work that is within us, where all we need to do is exercise that and walk in that well together. So we're going to sing and we're going to respond to what Jesus says in his word. But as you come to the table this morning, here's the perspective I want you to have. Christ had compassion on you. When you were helpless, when you were harassed, Jesus gave his body and his blood for you to be bought, for you to be brought into his family. So when you come, take and enjoy it as a believer. Take and enjoy it and be reminded of the fact that God then calls you into that same compassionate mission. That you've received what we freely receive. The scripture says what? We freely give. And that's what we are to do as God's people. So, uh, Marcus, would you come on up? We're going we're gonna to sing. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond. If this is your church and you want to give to that, there's some giving boxes up here. Feel free if you want to. Um, the beautiful thing is that we're here, and we get to gather around God's word together, and we get to sing to him, and we get to enjoy him.